Let's begin in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part of the high priest, or but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, which the first tabernacle, while the, the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of, of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there, also must, uh, also, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission." Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that we should offer, he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many 
to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we just love your word and we love how rich it is and how full it is of of spirit and life, Lord, and your word, you said that your words are spirit and life. And so we, we just pray now as we worship you in the, in the study of your word, Lord, help us to understand all these things and help us to make application. Lord, we're grateful for Jesus, our great high priest. We thank you, Lord, for all that he's accomplished for us. And we know, Lord, as we study these verses, you, you want to help us understand these things and also to know how they apply to our lives. So we pray that you'd set this time aside. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. And we pray that you would use these verses to further conform us into the image of Christ. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. While the writer is continuing this uh, amazing book to these Jewish believers who were contemplating going back to Judaism, going back under the law, going back into the old system of things represented by the old covenant. And now in chapter 9, he continues speaking about all the ways that Jesus is better. The whole book's about how Jesus is better. That's the theme. Jesus is better. But he's been talking about Jesus being a better high priest. And so that's what we've been looking at as we've been studying through the book lately in the last uh, few chapters that we've been in. And, and he kind of picks up today on what he started in chapter 8 when we're told of this beautiful new covenant. And look with me at the last verse of chapter 8 quickly as he introduces that, or at least touches on it. He says in chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You may remember me speaking that this, at this time when the writer is writing to this uh, church or this group of believers, that it's about three to four years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And they love that temple. They love the whole sacrificial system, all of those things. These Jewish believers are being tempted to go back unto that, having no idea that, that God had, had, doesn't even recognize that sacrificial system. And he hadn't since God rent the, the, the temple veil from top to bottom on that Good Friday, thus showing us that that access to God's been provided for by, by another high priest, a great high priest, that is Jesus, so that we have complete access into the Holy of Holies, and also we become the Holy of Holies as the Spirit dwells inside of us. Now he says in chapter 9, verse 1, then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Now, the writer is going to teach them about heaven. Heaven, you can't separate heaven from the great high priest that is ministering there. And he's going to use a frame of reference with which they were very familiar. And that frame of reference is the tabernacle. And, of course, it carried on into the temple that was going on at that time. They were, he was going to move them from the familiar to the unfamiliar, to, to reveal to them, he's already, already touched on it briefly, that the tabernacle is a copy of something that's even greater, and that is heaven itself. And so he's going to expound on that in demonstrating that Jesus is a better high priest. And what we're going to see is Jesus described as this great high priest that basically has dual roles. And he's going to describe it kind of three different ways, kind of three different dual roles. He's going to talk about Jesus being both the sacrifice, but also the priest. He's going to talk about Jesus being the offering, but also being the offeror. 
someone that offers an offering. And also he's going to talk about Jesus dying, but also being the executor of his estate, so to speak, all at the same time. No earthly human uh, high priest could have ever been any of those things all at the same time. There was a unique ministry that they had, and it wasn't bad. It was great. It was wonderful. That ministry of the high priest is a wonderful God-ordained, God-sanctioned ministry. But it just wasn't as good as Jesus' ministry under the new covenant, being a high priest under another order. Not the order of of the priest, the the Levitical priests and so forth, but the order of Melchizedek that that we looked at earlier. So we're going to see that, but with all of this, we're going to see with an emphasis on the proficiency and the superiority of, of his sacrifice. We as Christians need to know how proficient that sacrifice was. It affects our lives today. You may ask how. How does that affect our lives? Because if we don't have a confidence in the sufficiency of that blood that was shed for us, it trickles down into our practical lives, how we live. We don't have confidence before God. And, and the Jews had a confidence before God, but it was inferior to the confidence that we have as believers today. And, and we only will see that when we see the proficiency and the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice, specifically the proficiency of his shed blood. There's no greater thing that ever touched this earth than Jesus' shed blood uh, from that cross and from his sacrificial body there. So I want to look at a few of these verses, uh, actually all these verses, but as we begin, a few of these verses that deal with that which was familiar to them. They knew all about the, the, the tabernacle. They knew all about all of that stuff. For us, we're kind of catching up to some of that, most of us being Gentiles. But there is this, this incredible uh, common denominator or frame of reference that these Jewish believers would be able to have in common with this writer, which it would turn the lights on for them. So let's look at it in verse 2. He says, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, we can't speak of it in detail either. (laughs) You know, we don't have the time to go through it. And you can study it all the way through. There's a ministry called the Tabernacle Experience. How many of us have been through that? Not the one that was at the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in town, but another, the, the other one, the, the, the famous one that goes around. And it's really neat. I'm, I'm praying about maybe bringing that in sometime when we can because I, I don't think it's ever been to, to Manteca or this area besides Modesto. It could have come to Tracy at some point or Stockton. But it's just neat to be able to see the dimensions of the tabernacle because it wasn't a very big uh, structure that was built. It's very small, actually, from what you may think. The, t- the, t- the temple was, was huge compared to it, uh, but even that was not as big as you might expect. So I want to give you a little verbal tour of what you would experience if you came through that gate into the, con- the area that was sanctioned off where the tabernacle was. You'd first come into the outer court there, and you would, you would come up to the bronze altar. 
And that was the place where the sacrifices were made. It was square and it wasn't very big. It was, it was you know, probably like, like this. And that was where the sacrifices were made. And then after that, just beyond that, before you get to the actual tabernacle, you would come to the bronze laver. And that was the place where, where they were told to wash their hands and their feet and so forth. And it was obviously before they go into the tabernacle there. And then you'd come to the first veil. Because we're, talk, we're told about two veils here in the passage. Come to the first veil that, you'd, that the priests could only go into. And you would go in and uh, uh, you, you would go into what's called the holy place. And you would see on your left the golden lampstand, the menorah there. Represented a lot of things. And if you go through and do a study on how all these things pointed to Christ, it's, it's amazing. So people have all kinds of theories about the fullness of what that represented. But if you turn to the right, you would see the table of showbread. And then right in front of you would be the, the altar of incense there. I believe that that, in part at least, represents the prayers of the saints that go up before him uh, in, in heaven there because it's a sweet-smelling incense fragrance to him. And then once it, there was another curtain, and that's the curtain that only one man could go in or past. And that, once a year, after his sins were atoned for, and he would go in with blood, and he would sprinkle it on the altar there, on the, on the mercy seat of the, there, in the Holy of Holies. And they, they would tie a rope around his, uh, at least by the time of Christ, they would tie a rope around his leg in case he died or something. No one else could go in there. I mean, you'd have to let him stay in there till the next high priest came in a year later. They didn't want to do that. So they would, they would, he would have bells uh, sewn into his garments, and so they'd hear him move and so forth. And so they, they, in case there were issues, they could pull him, pull him out. But he would go in there once a year and, and make that atonement. And so that's kind of the tour there, and that's kind of how it was set up. And now he continues in verse 6. He says, now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, there was all kinds of sacrifices that went on during the year. And so the, these were sins that, obviously, all of our sins, in some degree, are in ignorance because we don't know the fullness of, of how badly they hurt the Lord. They, we don't know, just like Jesus prayed on the cross, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They knew what they were doing. I mean, they knew that they were, that they were doing this crime of, of executing him. But they didn't know the fullness of what that represented there. And we don't know the fullness of what our sin does. And, and so it wasn't just sins of, I mean, there was willful transgressions that were, that were atoned for during the year. And there was also these here that were related to their sins of ignorance. And so God has set this up so that when, when, these, the blood was, was sprinkled on the, on the altar there once a year, just as he prescribed, it would cover, and that's very important for our lesson today, it would cover. The, the Hebrew word for atonement, it means to cover. So you think of our sin like a, like a rock or something, and then you would cover it, and then that would be a barrier in between them and God. And God would roll these sins ahead, and, and every year would just keep rolling them ahead, rolling them ahead until the cross. And then something entirely different happened, which we'll get to. And so he says, this is kind of how things were set up here. And the Holy Spirit indicated in verse 18, or verse 8, that, that the way, notice it's singular, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. First of all, the way. There's always been the way. 
There's always been a way, and it's always been narrow. People get mad that Christianity claims that it's the only way to God. And, and most religions claim that theirs is the only one that's right or the, most, the one that's most correct or whatever. Uh, but it's not, truth is narrow. And anytime you deny that truth is narrow, you've just made a narrow truth claim. <laughs> you know, there's only one truth. And if you deny it, it, it comes and bites you in the, in the hiney, you know. And, and so there's just this narrow way. God's always had one way. And God gets to choose how many ways there are. He could have made many ways. But it's a way that's based on righteousness. That's, that's what it's based on. It's based on righteousness. So how can I enter into a relationship with God that's based on righteousness. Well, God chose to only have one way for that to happen through sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. And so you have to go through the narrow gate. He's the door. He's the way. So we have to recognize that. So it's not something new, but what he's talking about in verse 8 when he says the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, it's talking about a way for us to have that relationship with God in terms of entering into the sanctuary, the original sanctuary in prayer, to have that access, to have our great high priest be making intercession for us, for us to become or be able to come boldly into the throne of grace, to the throne of grace and, and lift our things up, our, our cares and concerns up to him. That wasn't made manifest while the, the first tabernacle was still standing. The Messiah had to come. The ultimate high priest had to come and pay that price so that we could have that access to God. We're told in verse 9 it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So again, they're looking at the high priest and the human high priest and respecting that him and all of that. And, and he's saying this, this, this old covenant that's obsolete, it could never fully make perfect or complete the conscience of the high priest that went in there and offered that sacrifice before the Lord. Couldn't completely do that. But what Jesus accomplishes is far greater. And then all the things that he did it with in verse 10, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. What's the time of reformation? The old, where the new covenant comes into play. Where now he's doing a new thing. Having a new covenant, a better covenant. And that's the time of reformation. So all these ordinances that God set up, again, nothing wrong with them. They're great. They're wonderful. They're just inferior to what Jesus' ministry accomplished. And notice the first contrasting word there in verse 11. He says, but. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So our high priest came, and he made a way for us to go to uh, a better, perfect tabernacle. And, and the speaking of the things to come, I believe that's talking about when we get to have access to him in a physical way, when we get physically saved, delivered to heaven, and we're there in his presence there, that's greater. It's a greater uh, fulfillment of a high priest function. The, our high priest. His function is greater in that way because it's the, the, what he entered into and what he represents us in is something that's not made. It's not made with human hands. It's not of this creation, we're told at the end of verse 11. And the blood that was shed, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, 
but with his own blood. Sometimes people want to sanitize the Bible. They want to take away the verses that talk about the blood. They want to take away songs that deal with the blood. Even in the Old Testament, a lot of the hymns that people sing talking about the blood of Christ and, and, and even talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, they want to sanitize that. It's like, ooh, that's, that's icky. You know, I, don't want, I don't want to think about blood and so forth. But when we take away the reality of what sin costs or the price that people pay for sin, it takes away the sobriety that we need to live lives that are pleasing to God. Sin is a big deal to God. It should be a big deal to us. And there is always something that where sin cost people things. And that sacrifice cost them. When they came forward, they had to sacrifice. That's what it, where the name came from. They had to sacrifice something that had a real life, had a real heart, a beating heart, that had real blood that was as innocent, so to speak, as they could find, without spot, without blemish. Something that, that, that wanted to live. And they had to sacrifice. They had to end its life. It was a picture to the, to the Jews and to us how serious sin is. Because every, every year when they brought that sacrifice and represented their family, and so, so to speak, the, the whole family knew that something was going to die because of their behavior. You know, we, we, we sometimes will ground our kids or punish our kids. What if an animal that lived in the backyard that that they really loved or at least, uh, you know, were aware of, every time that they did something or at least, you know, occasionally we had to go back and kill that thing and they had to see that blood being shed. I mean, it, what message would that get across? It would get across that your sin is serious. It, it, it's a serious thing and it's always been a serious thing. So we could just pass over the significance of this shed blood. And this whole time God was setting it up to, to point to Christ so that we would see the seriousness of his sacrifice and the proficiency of that shed innocent blood. Him never having a sin nature, him never sinning. You know, he said, he, who among you convicts me of sin? And as it's been said, there was silence then, there's silence today. Nobody can legitimately accuse him of any sin. And so if we don't understand the seriousness of the, those sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's harder for us to understand the seriousness of Christ's sacrifice and his blood that was shed for us. So now verse 12 kind of helps us see that he's both the offering and the offerer. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. The Old Testament, the high priest couldn't do that. He couldn't be both the sacrifice and the, the, the priest all at the same time. And then we're told he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Wow, what a huge part of this verse. I like that where it says, once for all. And he entered the most holy place, heaven. He entered the holy of holies there in heaven. He entered that beautiful throne room that we see a little glimpse of in Revelation chapter 4. I'm, I'm excited to get there when we get to Revelation. Be able to look inside that throne room a little bit and be able to see what Jesus entered into after having that victorious uh, mission be accomplished on the cross and that ascension. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that he gave gifts to men. 
And the whole imagery is when a, a conquering army would come in and they would take over another country in battle. They would take the spoils and then the, the, the captains and the generals would distribute the, the bounty or the booty or whatever it's called. Uh, and they would, they would distribute that and, and give rewards out and all of that. And the whole picture is, is, is victory. And so when Jesus, can you imagine Jesus being in heaven and having Jesus after him dying on the cross and ascending to heaven, coming into heaven, just think of the angels, what they did. Just think of that victorious moment where the Lord Jesus comes into heaven after accomplishing everything that he accomplished there in total victory. And then he gave out the spoil, so to speak, and poured out gifts to men in the day of Pentecost and distributed those gifts. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's a, it's a message of victory. But we see here uh, in the last part of verse 12 that he died and accomplished this once for all. He entered once and for all. And if it wasn't finished, if when Jesus was on the cross, if, he, if he'd said it to be continued, he wouldn't have entered that holy place in heaven once for all. He'd have to come back and, and, and die again or, or suffer more in some way. But it, he, he, he suffered once for all. And that's noteworthy. How many of us have had a Roman Catholic background? A lot of us here. And if you're Roman Catholic today, just listen to me. When, they, when that priest, so-called priest, holds up, hold up that, that Eucharist, they believe that is actually Christ dying again. Now that goes against this verse and others that says he died once for all for sin. It's blasphemy to say that he had to die, he has to die over and over and over and over again. And they believe that's when the, bod, the, the, the bread actually becomes his physical flesh and the, and the wine becomes his physical blood so that he would die again for our sins in a, in a mystical way. And, I, and this verse says, no, once for all, once for all he died for us. And what did he obtain? Look at the end of verse 12. Having obtained eternal redemption. Now that word eternal would ring in their ears, these Jewish believers, because they're thinking the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. When the high priest comes in and he offers that sacrifice, there's not anything eternal about that. The word that would come to mind would be yearly. <laughs> yearly redemption in the sense of, of having their sin covered from one year to the next. But now it's, he's obtained eternal redemption. Redemption needs to be purchased. So he's purchased us for all eternity there by that once and for all sacrifice. So if you contrast that with the old covenant, and that's one of the reasons why it's inferior and that what we enjoy in the new covenant is superior is because you'd have an inferior sanctuary. The sacrifices only lasted for a year in terms of the day of atonement and it secured a temporal or a, a temporary uh, covering of sin or redemption. Now he continues in verse 11, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we, first of all, we see in verse 13, he says, if those things sanctified by the purifying of the flesh, and they did to a point, they did set apart the people of Israel for, for in a temporal situation, and it was effective, but it just came short of what what the new covenant accomplishes. Because that's why he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ accomplish for us uh, 
a cleansing of our conscience. He says, without spot to God. A spot is something that you're born with. It's an inherent uh, blemish. And, and, and a, um, but the other is, is a blemish is something acquired. You know, like a, 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 you know, a lamb would cut itself on a, on a fence or something, and they were, or, or a scar or something. So a spot, something you're born with, a, a, a blemish is something that is acquired. And, and so he was that perfect lamb for us, but as he was that sacrifice, he did something to our conscience. Remember earlier he said about the, the, the high priest that he could not cleanse his conscience in totality. But for us as believers, he cleanses our consciences from dead works. It's not by accident he says there in verse 14, dead works. Because if you're a Jew, you're engaged in works, 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 works. To try to gain access to God and to, and to please God with your performance. But no matter what you do, we're told that it's dead. It doesn't do anything. It has no proficiency to it. And notice he contrasts dead works to serving the living God. There's a difference. And when they were engaged in doing these works, they were very much thinking that they were serving God. But God's assessment of it was, it's not serving me at all. Because it's not doing the things in the way that I would have them be done. And because you can't have a, a relationship with me like you can now. So when we serve God, we're serving God from the context of uh, being forgiven and having a right standing with God. Positionally righteous before him. So that we can serve him in a way that blesses him and that is meaningful. You know, we can go through life as a Christian relating to God by our works. And God doesn't want that. We're primarily first children of God. We're sons and daughters of God. Who he has created in Christ Jesus for good works, yes. But we need to relate to God first as sons and daughters of his. And he says, you're friends, even beyond, I mean, in addition to that. He says, a friend, I mean, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. He has revealed information to us, intimate information to us. He doesn't do that just for anybody. So we have this deep, intimate relationship with him, and, and he enjoys it more than we enjoy it, and it's hard to believe that. Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There's, this is where we see him being both the one who died and the executor of the estate. And he says there in verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. How many of us have been the recipient of, a, of an estate where we've been receiving inheritance? Some of us. Well, that, that will that's in force has no application until the person dies. It's, it's, it doesn't really f do anything until the person dies. But once the person passes away, then it's in force. There. And usually we assign an executor or an executrix, if it's a woman, to facilitate and administer those proceeds to the people that are receiving the inheritance. That's how it works. And what he's saying here that this is no different, that Jesus had to die. And once he died, because he died, 
now all the benefits of, of salvation and all that we get in him, has, 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 uh, we can realize those things and receive a spiritual inheritance because he's, because he's died, but he had to die first. So he was both the one who died and the executor of the estate all at the same time. There's a story of a, a man who knew this elderly woman who was, uh, I think, in her early 90s. And she lived in France, and she had this really nice villa. And she wasn't living at this villa, and, and she wanted to, to rent it out. And so this man offered her, I think, $500 a month. Uh, and, you know, in, in France, I think that's a lot, a lot of money, you know, the equivalent of a lot of money, and, and, um, or not a lot of money, rather. And so he thought he was getting this deal. And she lived to, like, 118, 120. And he was like, uh, you know, it was like it is, is low 50s or whatever. So he ended up dying when he was 70-something. And so this whole time he thought he was getting this great deal because the arrangement was that when she died, he would get to receive uh, the, the, the estate. And so she outlived him, and that was a, that was a bummer. For, and, and, and then the, her, his kids had to continue to pay that and so forth. And so that, that, that is something that, we, you know, you have to be careful because if you're wanting an, an inheritance, you, you know, you have to obviously, you know, out, not outlive the... Um, I mean, outlive the person that died. So you want the person that died to outlive you. Um, how do we get on that? I don't know. Let's keep going. So uh, verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. It sounds like Jesus saying, this is the, new, the blood of the new covenant in my blood. You know, it's very similar. Then likewise, verse 21, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So this is very important because of this, this, the, the sanctification of all of that what God was doing in the Old Testament and as he told Moses to do all these things, he took blood and he took all these other things and he sprinkled it. And it was a way to show that, uh, that God was setting them apart. But there was a cost associated to it. These animals died as a result of it. And what he's saying is it's the same way with the new covenant. Someone had to die to set us apart. And it was the, the shedding of the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So Jesus' blood that was shed upon the cross, that, that kind of qualified him, so to speak, to be able to be the high priest and to go into the real holy of holies. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the earthly tabernacle was, and the temple was modeled after, and, and, and go in there and, and sanctify that, the heaven in that way. I mean, heaven was perfect already, but God, had, it says here in the verse that there was a sanctification that happened through uh, Jesus said, shedding his blood. For Christ, had, for Christ had not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's interesting. Notice he says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. How does he do that? Because everything that we've been looking at related to the, new, the, the high, him being our high priest, 
talks about his current ministry. The Gospels talk about his earthly public ministry. But Jesus has a ministry now. And his ministry now is the ministry of a high priest. And he's making intercessions. We've already seen how he's offering gifts to God in that way. He's offering things to the Father in his prayers on our behalf. And that's very valuable. So he says here, now he appears in the presence of God for us. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often. Again, it only happened once. As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world because men's sins have been going on since the foundation of the world. But now, once the, at, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away, notice those three words, put away sin. That's very important for our application today. Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the Old Testament definition, again, is to cover. That's the definition of atone or atonement in the Old Testament is to cover. In the New Testament, it's to to take away. That's the definition of atonement in the New Testament and how it applies to the cross of Christ. Then he says in verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. I do want to pause here because there's a lot of things we can learn from this verse. First of all, there's no reincarnation. Reincarnation is based upon the idea that there's millions and millions of deaths, that you die and you come back something else, and then you die and you come back something else. That's, that's not true. But when we die, when anyone dies as a human, our body just stops, and the real us keeps going. It's like when you uh, are driving a car and it breaks down, and you get out of the car and you start walking. You keep going. The true you keeps going, and you lay down the shell, so to speak, or the tent or whatever else we like to refer to it as, and, and so believers are going to go into the presence of God. Unbelievers go into Hades. And they're awaiting the great white throne judgment. And we're told in Revelation that there'll be a resurrection of the dead from all over the world. And they will be raised. They'll get bodies. Not, not glorified bodies like we will, but they'll get bodies for judgment. And they'll stand at the great white throne judgment. Their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life. Then they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That should motivate us to preach the gospel. Because, yeah, we're in. We're Christians. We get to enjoy the new covenant. We get to enjoy our great high priest, all these things. We get to have the confidence that we're going to live forever with God. We're going to have a mansion and so forth, a new body and all of that. But those around us, don't, they don't know Christ. That's why we're doing the VBS at the, at the, at the family shelter. Children that don't know Christ, that are above the age of accountability, and parents that don't know Christ, and they need to know Christ. And so that gives us a good uh, understanding or the sobriety that we need to keep being busy about our biz- the Lord's business and preaching the gospel. So judgment is coming. Notice that at the end of verse 27. People live this life as if they're never going to be judged by God, as if God's never going to hold them an account of their lives, and he will. We're told every idle word will be judged, to say nothing of our works. And if you look at the great white throne judgment, he says multiple books will be open, not just the, the book of life to see that their name isn't there. There's multiple books that will be open. So when a person dies, there's judgment. The first judgment that they experience is being in, in Hades waiting to, to be resurrected for final judgment. But there's a judgment right after we die. And, 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 that's, and I'm, I believe as Christians, from our sense of time when we die, 
It's immediately at the rapture when we are standing there before Christ and we're at the Bema seat judgment and he's testing our motives and all the things that we did for him and so forth because we're outside of time at that point. So even though the rapture may not happen for a while, from our perspective when we die, likely we will experience uh, the judgment seat of Christ and and that'll be a good thing for us uh, in many ways. Then he says in verse 28, so Christ was offered once Notice the word once again, to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him who will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So he was offered once to bear the sins of many. And then he says he's going to appear a second time. And those that are eagerly awaiting, and that word eagerly in the Greek means expectantly. That can only talk about or describe the people of God. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And we have a torn, uh, we have a conflict so often going on inside of us because we do want to be with him. We want to be free of this, this sinful nature, tired of it. And we want to be in his presence and we want to embrace him. We want to look into his eyes and we want to say in in our physical new body presence with him, in his presence, I love you and all these things that we want to say face to face. We can't do that yet. But just like Paul was torn about his work here on earth, we we have work to do. And we want as many people to come to know Christ as possible through our lives. So we eagerly wait for him to appear a second time apart from sin. In other words, his work of dealing with sin is over. He said it is finished. He's not going to be dying for the sins of the world again. And the second time is for salvation in the sense of physical deliverance of us. That we get our new bodies and we're caught up together in the clouds to be with him. And we're supposed to comfort one another with those words. I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the children of Israel and the Jews in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, they would wait for that high priest to come out of the Holy of Holies after he would go in and, and he would sprinkle that blood on the altar on their behalf. They waited. They waited for the high priest to come out of the Holy of Holies to appear to them. That's interesting because that's what we're doing. We're waiting for our high priest to come out of the true Holy of Holies, who's been interceding on our behalf, praying to the Father, for him to come. And it was a time of celebration. And when you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when we're caught up together in the clouds to meet him in the air, he, how much more could God describe a celebration than what he, the trumpet call of God. You know, he will descend with a shout. I mean, that's, that's, a vo- that's the description of celebration. And we see that he's celebrating at that moment. He says, it's time to be together with my bride been waiting and praying for my bride for 2,000 years, and now I get to embrace my bride and to give these gifts. I've gone away to prepare a place for her, just like the Jewish wedding where the groom would go away to to prepare a place, a beautiful place, and then come back and bless the bride. And that's what he's waiting to do. And so that only could happen, though, because of his ministry as high priest. Now, I want to get back real quick before we close related to that covering of the Old Testament. There's application for us. In the Old Testament, again, I'm going to say it for the third time. I really want us to get this. The Old Testament meaning was means to cover. The New Testament means, uh, definition of atonement, is to remove completely out of the way. 
We in the New Covenant can live as if God deals with us as he did the Old Testament Jews related to that old definition of atonement. Because we can think that God is just covering our sin. And he has x-ray vision. And he looks through that hand and he really sees my sin. And he really, really bums them out some days. Oh no, they really did this thing. I forgave them, but I'm still seeing it there. That's not the definition. That's not what Jesus accomplished for us. That's a wrong belief about the proficiency of the blood of Christ. He took it away. There is nothing there. He separated our sins from us and him as far as the east is from the west. You can go on a globe and if you go east, you're never going to see west. When you go north, eventually you see south. But when you go east to west, you never run into west when you go east. It's never going to be remembered against us anymore. It's completely taken out of the way. But we can live as if it's not out of the way. We can think that he's seeing our sin in between us and him, and he doesn't. It's taken care of. He died for all of our sins. He removed them out of the way. He doesn't remember them anymore. And and we need to live our lives as if that's true, because we don't. We have a lack of confidence before God because we don't believe the proficiency of the blood of Christ put to our account. We don't realize how proficient. Do you understand how proficient that blood is and what it accomplished for us? He wants us to know that. He wants us to have confidence in that. He wants us to know fully what he accomplished for us because he wants us to have confidence. Hasn't he been saying related to us approaching him in prayer, going before the throne of grace to come boldly? If we're doing this, we're seeing God see our sin underneath that hand, covering, yes, but he still knows it's there. We're not going to come boldly. We only come boldly when we know that that sin issue is taken care of. That gives us confidence to go before him. How much has the, the enemy ripped us off or ripped Christians off because they've lost their confidence before God because they don't understand how powerful Jesus' blood is? It's powerful. And God wants to remind us of that today. You are, if you're a Christian here, you are positionally flawless and perfect and holy before God. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness and holiness of Christ. That's what he sees. Practically speaking, we sin. And he has made provision for that in 1 John 1.9, the Christian bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He doesn't tell us that we don't practically sin. There's a difference, though, between positional holiness and practical holiness. The positional holiness, we're flawless, 100% holy. That's the only reason why he can have anything to do with us. But the practical holiness, when we confess that, that gives us confidence before him in the sense of fellowship and and that connection with him that he wants us to have in an ongoing practical way. So the message to us today is the confidence that we should have in in the blood of Christ and how powerful it is. We need to live boldly in our relationship with him. We're his children. How many of us that are parents or grandparents are always thinking about all of our children's shortcomings and how they've failed every time that we see him? We don't. And Jesus said, we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He says, I'm not like you. I have a superior love. I'm not evil. I'm greater than you. So if we being evil have an inferior love for our children and we don't even do that, how much more does our heavenly father not see our sin and our shortcomings and our failures every time he thinks of us or looks at us? 
It's pretty profound. Hopefully that is a message to someone like they've never heard that before, but also to us that have heard that before, to have that reinforced in our hearts. So that those, because there may, there may be times in the future where we need to remember that because we don't, we've lost that confidence or we lose sight of that reality. And God wants us to enjoy that confidence. He enjoys us. Do you know that God enjoys you? He enjoys you and he enjoys me. He doesn't want anything getting in the way of that. So let's let these verses do that work in us as only he can do by his spirit. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the proficiency of your, of your son blood. Lord, I pray that every one of us here would have complete confidence in our relationship with you because you've taken our sins out of the way. You haven't just covered them from one year to the next. You've taken them out of the way. So Lord, I pray you'd help each one of us to live that way on an ongoing basis. And we know, Lord, that you can uniquely show us by your spirit how each one of us can apply that reality in our lives. So we trust that your spirit's going to do that. We thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.